What is crack-lacking, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Dan Favalli coming at you with my certified, fantabulous co-host, Grant Hughes. Before we dive in, our usual reminders, please remember to subscribe to us wherever you consume us. If that's on a podcast player and you're checking us out for the first time, throw us that permanent subscription. Ratings and reviews help out a ton. Subscribe to us on YouTube, even if you're listening to us on a podcast player. Like, comment on the videos to help the algorithm love us back. We also do have a YouTube short specific channel where we just put up like some wild NBA stats that we're seeing in 15 seconds or less clips. So go follow that. I have to put the link in the podcast and YouTube descriptions. I've yet to do that. I really need to get on that. Join our Discord. Let's help that community grow. It's been a little bit like stymied. Uh, we do have, you know, a ton of people in there. The discussions are great. Come join so that Grant and I can talk even less and just be voyeurs and watch what you're saying. The link to the Discord is in the podcast and YouTube descriptions. Follow us on all the socials. We are at Hardwood Knox on Twitter and TikTok and at Hardwood underscore Knox on Instagram. The sheer number of things we're asking you to go follow should show the level of effort and detail we're trying to put into this. So follow everything. With those housekeeping notes out of the way, Grant, how the hell are you doing? Uh, unlike Jordan Poole's late game ball security, I'm solid. Wow. Finally, you're there. Welcome. <laughs> The Warriors yeah, we were talking before we started Poole recording. After season. Like, I'm glad that you're finally there. That that yeah, no, happen. we were talking before recording. I, I hit a low point again when the Warriors were playing the Bulls the other day. Um, I just uh, couldn't, I couldn't handle it anymore. And some would say uh, I should have hit that low point sooner. But then they beat the Wizards, so everything's totally fine again. And and so I'm I'm back I'm back on top, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to do at least seven muscle ups in a row. Sure. Sure, sure. Um, we got some good questions this time, but we also have our own questions that we're going to, or not questions, I guess, topics. That we're, we're, yeah, so we're going to try this. We need to come up with this, maybe like bouncing around, or could we call this like the relocation three or something, where we just sort of pick two to three topics each that we've been thinking about, their macro, micro, whatever, um, and just have a discussion about it. And yeah, so that's what we'll start off with. And we have a bunch of good mailbag questions, plenty of fake trades. That's tis the season, by the way, for that. So if anyone doesn't like trade content, like I don't know what to tell you. We're a league-wide podcast. Our trade and free agency podcasts are the podcasts that consistently do the most numbers. I don't think we inundate you with it when it's not topical. Um, but if you don't like trade content, I'm sorry. Like it's tis the season. We're inside a month of the trade deadline. I don't know what to tell people. <laughs> Follow a different sport, I guess, because this is what it is now. Like it doesn't matter what month it is. It doesn't matter when the deadline is. This is just this is what the people want. So like I've, I'll put like yeah, we'll pull back the curtain. I don't love trade content, <laughs> but, but I've I've grown to accept it and like it definitely. And we'll do it today. Sometimes it's just a way to talk about a team when you're talking about trades and what they can do and what they need and what their options are you're invariably going to actually just have a pretty detailed discussion about that team. So that's kind of the way in, but yeah, the trade stuff, get ready because the deadline's in less than a month. And this is what, not just us, but this is what everybody's going to be doing. I'm so a few notes here on that, I guess because of the time when we kind of entered the business, when like over a decade ago, now, if we want to age ourselves, it was so free agency and trade focused mm -hmm. that I think I have a soft spot for it because like, that's how, I needed to cut my teeth and that's the thing like immersing myself in the CBA. Um, I will say I still enjoy it around closer to the deadline where it forces me to think about team directions, their assets going deeper into what like they can get for players or whether players should like fit with this team. But what I like most about 
the trade stuff is when it actually happens. I like evaluating those fits of new players that are actually there. Like, yes, the theoretical is fun when you're trying to come up with packages, but I only really enjoy that when there's rumors and news to go off where it's just like, you know, having to come up with a blockbuster trade idea for every single team. If I've been munching on it, like, yeah, that might be something I enjoy, but I prefer having an actual trigger to go off. If we're going to talk about specific, like we have questions on it later, or we have specific trades. I like responding to those. Um, and, but I will say, I don't, like I said, I don't want to just randomly weave it in. Like if it's stuff I've been thinking about, like this time of year, like the, there is no randomness, like everyone's thinking about trades. Um, I do not, I don't want to say I don't respect. I don't get why people feel like they need to look down on the transaction game though, where it's just like, they're too high and mighty to talk about it, where it's, it's kind of like saying, well, we don't talk about the Lakers on this podcast because we're so trendy and edgy and we right. care about the game of basketball. It's if you don't want to talk about the Lakers, don't talk about the Lakers. If you don't want to talk about trades. It's not, not for everyone. Like we're not going to come on here and break down like, you know, which team runs the most 45 cuts in the third quarters on the second night of back-to-backs. Like that's not our style, but that doesn't mean that that content isn't great. That doesn't mean I don't consume that content outside of this podcast. And so that's me just probably being overly sensitive because of how much we actually need to think and write about trades for a living. But I never understood the whole holier than thou when it comes, when it comes to anything, like I'm not trying to be holier than thou with, with other people's content. Like that isn't related to trades, but when it's free agency or the salary cap or trades, there's just like that. I don't know if it's a stigma, but I don't get like, okay, cool. What are you going to get cool points on Twitter because you're, you're anti-trade or something like you're not talking about it. Well, and here's the other thing too. It's, it's not just like, it is consequential because just as I was doing, I was researching for some other stuff and I was just looking back at, you know, the last handful of of championship teams and contending teams. And there's pretty much always a trade that triggers that. So like, whether that's Drew Holiday to the Bucks, Anthony Davis to the Lakers, Kawhi to the Raptors, like even, you know, the Durant wasn't a trade. He was a signing, but then the trade of Durant to the Nets for D'Angelo Russell, who became Andrew Wiggins, who mattered a ton in the Warriors last, like, you know, the transaction game is, is hugely impactful. Um, It tends to be the higher end stuff. Like when you're talking about, well, can team X get, you know, a backup center for whatever, like that doesn't tend to have the same level of significance, but the reality is, you know, we talk about a million possibilities because people are interested in it, but eventually some of them, like the high end ones really do matter. And, you know, if, if you don't care about, you know, making up fake trades, you probably, you probably care about who's going to win the title. And so the two issues are actually linked. So that, that's kind of my way into it is it does matter. And you can't really discuss the, the hierarchy of the league or, you know, what's going on without factoring that kind of stuff in. So that's a, that's a way to get into, we're going to do some fake trades on this podcast today. Um, and not the first podcast that were released, I don't think really, but, oh, and the final thing I will say is fans do care about trades and free agency. And I do, while some of the most humbling or cool moments throughout my career have been when people I consider peers, even if I've on the off chance, I've looked up to them, admired their work, have come and said something nice to me about something I've written or something I've done. That always means a ton, but I think, Earlier on, I focused too much on trying to like want the approval or the, you know, gratification from people in the business rather than realizing that 
we make this content because there are fans, not of us specifically. They probably all hate us. They hate Definitely us. Definitely not of us. But because there are fans of the game that are interested in that content. And so over the past, like, three to four or five years, like, that's really dictated how I've gone about my work. And with the podcast, it's just, like, the the fans, like, the people who aren't in the business, who, by the way, when you go in our Discord, like, the knowledge of, like, fandom across the league, even if they're fans of specific teams, it's incredible. Like when you're going to have those productive conversations. So I don't mean, I'm not trying to demean by calling anyone a fan. Like I care a lot more about the regular content consumers than impressing people who might be in the business or that I necessarily look at like, yeah, that that's cool if it ever happens. And it's just, it, it doesn't happen that often. I'll just be quite honest. Yeah. Um, but like it's helped. I don't know if it's helped, but like that's been a big mindset shift is like to a point, like we're providing a service to people that want to listen hate, listen, hate, read, whatever to us. And that's what they're interested in. And, and look, that's important. There's disingenuous coverage, but like when you are sort of trying to cater to what people consume, I'm not going to fault sites or podcasts for doing that either. And it's funny that there's this long preamble to this when what we're about to discuss just really isn't that trade centric, even at all. Well, that's my influence. So I, let's, let's, let's begin the discussion. Um, this this is the first uh, issue that I wanted to kind of raise uh, that is part of an unnamed segment that let's solicit suggestions for what we call this when Dan and I just come with a couple topics we want to talk about before we get into questions or whatever. So what I wanted to discuss with you is I think one of the defining you know narratives, we should put air quotes around narratives because everybody really seems to hate that word. Um, but narratives and storylines. It's the right word. Uh, that motif. Yeah, ooh. one of the one of the through lines of this season has been the idea of parity, right? It's like, oh, it's the most wide open. And to an extent, that's true. That's why trade dead, the trade deadline stuff is kind of quiet because there's, you know, 26 teams or whatever that have a really win a title this year yeah. at, at the play in or, or more. Uh, but but so I was thinking about this with specific attention towards the West, which like if you look at the standings as we pull them up now you know, it's pretty jumbled up beyond the top two, which is Denver and Memphis. And then there's like a five game drop to New Orleans. And then it's really not that far down to like the Blazers who aren't even in the play in right now. Um, so yeah, that looks like it's wide open, but I, I'm not convinced because let's, let's just kind of go through it. To me, the way I break the West down is this, and I, I, I know you're going to disagree, I think with the first part, I think Memphis right now, if you're talking about a team that could win the West, like advance to the finals i think memphis is a cut above everybody um and that's mainly because i just don't like we've said all year about the bucks and the other conference like i have no notes well we have notes now but like that was our running bit about M milwaukee is that like we don't have any concerns i don't have any concerns about memphis like people will say they need another shooter sure everybody needs another shooter but they're top you know top 10 in offense and defense they have run off a bunch of wins. They've kind of made the typical, like, let's advance a little farther each year with a young team in the playoffs. Like, the, the arc is there. I don't have any issues. I'm sure a lot of people would say Denver is there with them. I just, I think the key factor cutting against the Nuggets is, like, their defense just isn't good enough. It's been better lately, but you're talking about a bottom 10 outfit that I don't know that there's a realistic expectation that they'll be top 10, let alone like a better than average. So that's a big problem. And then you just go through the rest, like New Orleans, young, their best players are always hurt. 
you know, they passed the top 10 test on both ends, but it feels a little early for them. Go to like Dallas, you know, it, they just don't have enough outside of Doncic. Their defense also sucks. The Warriors and Clippers are down six and seven right now in the West, respectively. That could change with, you know, how close everything is. But like, if you don't, and this is pulling from John Hollinger was looking at this the other day for the athletic. If you're not a top three seed in the conference, like you just don't make the finals. You just don't, it, it doesn't happen. The last one to do it was the 95 Rockets. And that's a defending champion with Hakeem Olajuwon. Like that, that's just, that's an exceptional circumstance. It, it just never happens. So like, yeah, you, we could, and we will talk about how some of these teams like the Warriors Clippers can name a handful more are, you know, they're closer. They're a trade away. It's just like, maybe, but if you're not one of the top three teams and if you're not top 10 in offense and defense, and we're more than halfway through the season now, like I just, it's hard to take you seriously as, as a finals, you know, option. So I think it's Memphis and then everybody else. And I have like, I have real questions about everybody else to the point that it's almost, if it's Memphis versus the field to win the West right now, you, you always take the field, but it's a lot closer, I think, than, than, than the narrative to bring it all the way back would, would have, have you believe. So I don't actually disagree with what you're saying with Memphis. They're a team that I would love to see make a move or an upgrade, but we just kind of know that they're not going to, and I don't think they need to. But what I would disagree with is I think it's the Nuggets and the Grizzlies and then everybody else. And I, mm -hmm. I know you can look at the Grizzlies sort of season-long defensive stats. Um, and I th look, there's a real concern that we've been through it. People on YouTube are mad about it. When you look at some of their top-end units, they have so many different options to where they can defend well at the top. It's going without, I would say, dramatic improvement or variance in how they're going to defend with either Jokic on the floor or how good is Michael Porter Jr. going to be at that end? How good is Jamal Murray going to be at that end? Always been an underrated defender. I think that's probably the part of his game, though, that's taken the longest to come back since his ACL injury. If they can make some tough, emotionally tough calls in the moment, they can build like real good defensive units because you have Bruce Brown, you have Aaron Gordon, you have KCP, um, you have Christian Brown too. And so like between those four guys, if you're willing to not play Murray and or Porter for stretches, maybe when it matters, I think that the Nuggets defensive ceiling right now is probably higher than we're giving credit for. And we'll get into this in another question that I think is also a, a trend is that the Nuggets depth is like, I don't know if it's underrated, but like they're starting to figure things out without Nikola Jokic on the floor. And so let's even move beyond that and say, okay, we know that they're going to put their best, their three best players, Michael Porter, Jr., Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic on the court when it matters most. Those three guys are going to outscore pretty much like any other uh, group that they're going up against. And so if you're able to play the non-Jokic minutes to a net neutral or win those in the playoffs where we're talking about like what, eight minutes a game maybe at that point, it almost not that it doesn't matter how good your defense is overall, but that sort of gives you a larger cushion to where I think when we see a lot of these poor defensive units on what should be really good teams, they're not able to then tread water without their best players on the court. The nuggets might be an anomaly. Now, again, this is just like a month long trend. I'll say it now. I'll mention it again. This is podcast. The nuggets are a plus six without Jokic on the floor for the month of January. That is not insubstantial. It's six points. Who cares? That like, never happens. That is right. not that's just, that's totally new. And so I would say it's those two in the West for me. And I think you could even make the case of like, I know that we can say no notes on Milwaukee. I don't mean to turn this into the East, but is it 
the Nuggets and Grizzlies and everyone else in the league? Or is it like the Celtics, Nuggets, and Grizzlies and everyone else in the league? Who are you looping into that first tier of, of contender? Yeah, I think the East is actually where the parity is. Although I would say I, I like Boston better than everybody. Boston is kind of my almost to, to I think, how do I want to phrase it? I think Boston is better than Memphis, or at least I can see Boston hitting the highest level. Uh, but I like, you know, four or five other East teams as much or more than I like, say, Denver. And then certainly the further you go down through the West, just because a healthy Brooklyn team, a healthy Bucks team, uh, the Sixers with everybody healthy are like, I feel like we're, everyone's really reluctant. I, maybe I'm just projecting, but I'm reluctant to embrace the Sixers as a real serious, you know, top end threat, but it's like, how much longer do they need to play, you know, really well for us to just sort of lump them in there with the Bucks who have their problems, the Nets who have their problems. I mean, you mentioned the Cavs. So I, I don't, I just actually, I want to circle back to Denver. I, I, cause I agree with, I, I don't want to make it like I'm ruling Denver out. I just, they have such a pressing question on defense. And I, I would, I would push back a little bit and say that I think there are solves for the issues they've had defensively with what, like what to do with Jokic and how to get enough length on the back end to get sufficient help when offenses get past that top line when Jokic is up to touch or even when he's dropped back in a drop and you know there's a quick pass to the dunker and he just can't get there like there are solves for that in the regular season I think but I actually think you know you talk about the eight minutes in the playoffs or or whatever it is I think when you get into a series and you're playing exclusively really good teams and probably really good offenses it's going to be it's actually going to be harder to to kind of handle the issues that have been you know, plaguing the Nuggets for the last several years. I, I think I want to say they're like 11th on defense over the last, you know, maybe it's January, maybe it's the last couple of weeks. So that's encouraging, but I still, that puts them right on the borderline of just historically, is this team a real contender or not? So I would say that the Nuggets could get to that, get for me, get onto the level of Memphis right now, but and, and, you know, they could win a title, I guess. Sure. But to me, it would be, it would be an exception to the rule. It would be an anomaly. It would take Jokic doing what he did as we record this Tuesday, going like 13 for 14 from the field and having triple doubles just throughout the playoff, just like, you know, production and efficiency that makes it. So who cares if you're the 20th best defense, there's no stopping a guy that does that routinely. So it, it's possible, but I actually think the playoffs might magnify the issues they have defensively, as opposed to like, somewhat minimizing them because you only have to to handle the real big issues for short stints now why does it worry you less than that the grizzlies are still in the bottom 10 bottom 10 of half court offense and in the bottom five ish of three-point attempt rate like why is that a smaller concern compared to what denver's going through on defense i think i because i'm that's a great question i think it's because i'm looking just at historical precedent Okay. And, and in fairness, like, yeah, the, you know, the whole, that you got to be top 10 in both ideally top five to be a, a offensive defense, to be a serious contender, I, you know, doesn't price in, well, how are you getting that top five rating on offense? Is it all transition based, which I think we've seen before in the playoffs, it's a lot harder. That was the knock on the Grizzlies or a knock on the Grizzlies last year was their half court offense just 
it's, it's, you're going to be forced to do that more often in the playoffs. And if you're not good at it, it's a bigger issue. So fair point. I just think if you get into the playoffs and you found a way over 82 games to score at a top five clip, maybe your bad half court offense relative to your transition attack knocks you down to like 10 or whatever. And, you know, I think it's possible. The other thing is, and we've, we've kind of danced around it. Memphis to me is the team that has just the easiest path to add a shooter and, you know, whoever that is, that's going to help your half court offense. Um, and, And so I think I'm not pricing that in necessarily in all the stuff I just said, but I think it has to be acknowledged that the Grizzlies have all their firsts. They have the Warriors 2024 with light protection that I think is top one or then becomes unprotected over in 25 and 26, depending on when it conveys. Um, and they have salaries they can move that like they have Zaire Williams, who some team might view as like a, a real great second draft guy. So if you want, I'll just say, if you want Boyan Bogdanovich, nobody should be able to beat the Grizzlies offer for him. If, if he's available and if they decide, you know, it's worth a first and Zaire Williams and some filler to do that. So yeah, fair point. Like the half court offense is a big deal. I don't think it's as big a deal to me as just objectively being a bottom 10 and for a lot of the year, much worse than that defense. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe I'm harping too much on like, Oh, okay. Their two best half court offensive players are Desmond Bain and John Morant and your half court offense ranks in the 45th percentile when they play together. And so I'm just like thinking about the way that playoff defenses work. If you're able to limit their opportunities in transition, um, able to limit their opportunities on the offensive glass, like that forces them like into these awkward situations, which is why I think it's interesting. I'd be more, so we're just on opposite ends of the spectrum, which I think is fine. We're I'm more concerned about the Grizzlies than the nuggets, but I will readily recognize the Grizzlies have a clear path to like making an upgrade or addressing their biggest concern in season than the nuggets do just because like, if I'm the nuggets, I'm really not making a move. Like if you stumble into like a different kind of backup big on the buyout market or can get someone cheap via trade, I totally get it. But like you look at their roster and it's, you know, you don't want to say it's complete, but like there's, I'm not anxious to make a move for anyone. And so the Grizzlies, there's just more flexibility there because of the, maybe I feel differently about the nuggets if they had more first round equity, but I'm even just looking at their players and it's like, okay, like, yeah, you like step ladder with Jeff green and a Schmidt, if you really want to sure. But without any pick equity, it's like, well, what are we kind of doing there? Yeah, so the Nuggets, I, I'm pretty sure they can't trade a first until 2029, right? That's the only they, one. And they can't even guarantee it because yeah. the OKC pick can spill into that. Yeah, so they, and that, well, as I look at the two rosters, I, I agree with you that Denver, it's like, there's not a glaring, we got, I mean, you're really nitpicking if you're looking for where do they, what, what's the need on this, in this rotation? It's like, do you want someone that's a little steadier than Bones Highland to run the second unit? Okay, do you want a switchable second big? Sure, who doesn't? But it's just like the roster is good enough. I, I would say a point in Denver's favor to kind of buttress what you're saying is they still have the organic growth like capacity because Murray will get a little better at creating space and covering space on defense as he gets healthier. Mike Porter Jr. I mean, the injury questions obviously lingering, but, you know, he could he could continue to round into form like there's there's upside that Memphis. I think Memphis sort of is what it is. I don't I don't see anybody that's going to it may stop me if you think of someone, but I don't see anybody on Memphis that, Oh, this guy's going to get 20% better over the next few months. I think, I don't know who that is. Zaire Williams. It might be, it wouldn't, it's going to come down to opportunity and how he's like doing coming back from his injury right now. And that's, what's been, you know, you call him a second draft guy and it's kind of like, he was just coming along so well last season. And right. so I'm wondering if this is just sort of the offshoot of 
the injury, but like that is still the maybe it's Santi Aldama. I don't know. I love Santi Aldama as much as the next, but maybe it's Jaron Jackson Jr.'s like on ball offense or something like for all maybe. Know, but yeah, that's fair. Look at dude. us just making the case for the other teams that we didn't like. Yeah, so you this is kind of a nat, like a good segue, even though it comes like a minute after you said it. But you mentioned that like Denver, and this was the thing I was thinking about. So it is trade deadline related. But you mentioned Denver not being able to trade a first round pick in 2029, and they can't guarantee a first round pick at all. And my thing that I've been thinking about, and I normally push back against this because as someone who writes live grades on trades, like I don't want the trade deadline to suck. And I think invariably every year we hear about how the trade deadline might be quiet only for that to just be disproven. Maybe there's no mega blockbuster, but even last year, no mega blockbuster, but Oh, the Blazers tore it down. CJ McCollum was traded. The Clippers got Norman Powell. So this year though, specifically is the trade deadline going to suck? And the two things that I think we look at, yes, there's, you already mentioned it. There's the dearth of sellers because there's like, there's 20 teams that can talk to at least, that can talk themselves into playing for now or at least standing pat. It's like if you go through just and forget about what they what they actually have to sell. There's the Rockets, the Hornets, the Pistons, the Spurs. And then, okay, like are the Magic in there? Are the Wizards in there? Are the Raptors in there? Are the like so I named four teams. So it is 26. Like you were spot on with the 26 number. Beyond that, though, you have would-be buyers that can't really trade first round picks at all. Like let's say the nuggets, or they can only trade distant first round picks, which by the way, we've talked about this. And that's something I've given a lot of thought about. Those kind of have not artificial value, but there's a cap on their value because if you're trading, let's just use the Lakers as the example here, because that's the team that is, if you're trying to predict which team is most likely to trade a pick after 2025 at this trade deadline, I think you would say it's the Lakers. So you have that 27 and 2029 pick, those picks, the team that's acquiring them, that front office is making that trade knowing they're probably not going to be the front office that is using that pick, whether it's actually drafting a player or moving it in a trade. It is different. And we saw this with Utah where, yeah, maybe their Danny Ainge probably has all the job stability in the world, but Utah gets those distant first from Cleveland, Minnesota. In addition to all this other immediate stuff, including imminent picks, Actual players, a potential all-star starter, by the way, in Larry Marketing, uh, total different discussion there. So when that is the premier asset coming in, I think that that inherently diminishes the appeal of your package. And now the other thing that I don't know that we're talking enough about, there are so many teams that maybe they would consider making a trade or maybe teams own their picks, but these picks are, are protected for eternity. To where they can't, the team that has already sent them out, let's use Charlotte as an example, or actually let's use the Wizards because they feel like a team that would be most likely to fancy themselves buyers when they shouldn't be. That pick that they owe to the Knicks is protected to where they can't guarantee a first round pick before 2028. And so, yes, if you're a team, you could say, based on these conditional picks that they're willing to give up. Oh, well, they'll they'll make the playoffs if we give them this trade by 2024. So that first pick will convey in 2026 because their obligation to the Knicks will extinguish. Yeah, okay. But like, can you really bet on that? And so there are a lot of teams in that situation. Detroit, like they're not a team that wants to trade a first round pick, but they're definitely going to hold up the market. Like if the Knicks want to move that pick, there's a chance that pick from Detroit never ever conveys. And so that 
makes me wonder, okay, is the trade deadline going to suck? And my counter to my own argument was, well, if those imminent picks just aren't available, then teams will just kind of get on board with the currency of, well, let's latch on to those distant first round picks. In which case you have to ask yourself, are the Lakers really going to do it? Are the Bucks going to give up their 2029 first? Are the Clippers even going to give up their 2028 first? We've assumed for so long, like, hey, yeah, they'll do it. It's the Clippers. Steve Bomber doesn't, doesn't give a fuck. And I kind of still default to that maybe, but the Clippers are 28th in offense and we're more than halfway through the season. We don't know what Kawhi and Paul George, whether they're going to play on a night-to-night basis. There's, I think it's okay to be high on the Clippers' highest-end outcome, but it does seem increasingly unlikely that they're not built to reach it. And so it's just... I'm wondering, and I'm I'm going to say no, but I'm throwing it to you. I'm just I'm not going to believe that the trade deadline is going to suck. But also, we're hearing the same names over and over again more than we normally like. When Jalen McDaniel's is getting his own blurb in Sham Sharania articles, you know that it's like, oh shit. And so, is the 2023 NBA trade deadline, Grant Hughes, going to suck? I think I would love to. I think I would love to say no. But I think just for all the reasons you laid out, the like, and just what are the basics of it? There's a bunch of teams that are not ready to sell. Of those teams that might be willing to sell or might eventually become willing to sell as we get closer to the deadline, there's not a lot to sell. And the supposed buyers don't, in many cases, have what it would take to meet what I think are going to be inflated asking prices because of the dearth of buyers. And, and so like... Just to, just, just to take, you know, Boyan Bogdanovich, take whoever you want, John Collins, Boyan Bogdanovich, just whoever else has been rumored over and over. If you're the Pistons with Bogdanovich, for example, I think people are kind of scoffing at the idea that they want an unprotected first and a good young player. And it's just like, well, yeah, I guess in a vacuum, that seems like a lot for a guy that's 32 and, and you know, is, is a, a high-end role player. He's not necessarily, he's not a star. He's, he, you know, he's not a perfect player. I think defensively, if you're adding him as like the last piece in the puzzle, the situation needs to be right because he's not a great defensive piece all the time against all these matchups that you're going to see in the playoffs. He's fine. He's been good, but he's older. But in these circumstances, of course you should ask for a first and and say no protections and give me a young player because like what, 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 what does Detroit, who is, are the Pistons going to come and say, well, no, I mean, you know, we, we, or is, is, is some other team going to come in and say, we'll do better than I just like the market is what it is. There's not enough good players on it. There's not enough teams to create enough competition to, to make those offers seem ridiculous. So I just, I think you're right. I think a lot of it is just the names that are available and the teams that can acquire them. It's just, we're all kind of out of whack compared to years past. I wanted to talk about um, the distant pick thing, because that's really interesting to me. I I've gone back and forth on it. You know, really, like we talk about executives and front offices and general managers and stuff. And from their perspective, of course, you should trade 2027s and 2029s because reality is you're not going to be there. I think we forget, though, like there are owners of these teams. And if if an owner is not going to say, you know, the, the owner doesn't have the short career lifespan that an executive does. He he controls that executive's lifespan. And if I'm an owner and I have, a, you know, like a the patience one, which is in short supply generally, and like the ability to take like a longer view of things. Yeah, I want those those distant picks. 
Um, but it's just, it, you run up against a lot of people say the general manager's job is to sell the owner on what the general manager wants to do. So the, so the general manager is not going to make a strong sales pitch to, you know, take the long view and let's think about how this is going to look when I'm gone. That's just not how that job works. So it's the distant picks are interesting. I think it really does depend on ownership, what the value of those are. And the last thing is this conditional pick stuff and all these encumbrances that go out years and years and years and just totally hamstring a team's ability to make trades of any consequence. I would not be surprised if we are seeing kind of the end of these crazy long protections that roll over three and four years on picks because you just, you went through it. You know, there's all these teams that is one thing if you trade for first rounders, like say Atlanta or, or uh, Minnesota did this off season or Cleveland. Um, it's another, if you trade one first and it kind of messes up your draft for like four years, I, I don't think you're going to see teams, be so willing to have all these crazy rollovers because it just compromises flexibility so much. I feel like that's a real lesson we're learning at this deadline, which again, I think is going to be pretty quiet relative to even, even just last year. Cause think about last year, the last thing I'll say, like miles Turner's name was out there. He didn't eventually get traded. Demonis Sabonis and Tyrese Halliburton did, you know, this is whether you're talking right up to the deadline or before it, you still had John Collins on the market. You had, you know, all these other names, just in terms of quantity and quality that we just are absolutely not seeing this time. So I think, I think we're in for maybe there'll be a lot of moves, but there's, I don't think there's going to be uh, a big one. It's just, it's just too hard to imagine what that would even be. It would have to be a player comes sort of out of the woodwork and pushes for something last yeah. minute. And even that is just, I think teams are, we saw with the Pelicans and Anthony Davis way back when is just, they will, wait and make it look ugly to when they have more time to do it over the off season. And so, yeah, I really agree with what you said. And I do think that the, you know, I don't think this past summer reset the star trade market. I think that was just sort of an anomaly. And I think this has been building up towards when you look at the distant pick protections on top of what's happening in Minnesota right now, and even what kind of happened with Brooklyn and like how the James Harden thing just went up in smoke. Teams are going to be a little bit more judicious in what they're doing with their, their picks moving forward. But I do, I I'm hoping against hope that I'm wrong, but I do think that the the distant the lack of first round equity out there, coupled with the the hamstringiness of how what teams have done to encumber themselves by allowing these picks to be protected for so long, is going to slow down at least the top end of the trade market leading into the deadline. Yeah. Do you want to pivot to my other? This isn't a trade situation, but it's a it's the other big thing that's coming up is the is the All Star game. You want to go? Can we hit that one, or do you want to do another trade thing? No, let's, let's do that. Let's, let's talk about All that. Right. So I was, I was working on a project for Bleacher Report that'll probably be published by the time this comes out. It's just all-star predictions for 23. And I started looking back at last year and there were a million all-stars last year because there were so many injury replacements. But the fact is looking at it right now, and these are my predictions. So who knows what will happen with the fan vote and what coaches and media think. But I think there are 13 guys that made the 22 all-star team that are not likely to make it this year, which is a huge number. Um, and that is not including James Harden and DeMar DeRozan, who made wow. it last year. And I don't have making it this year. Um, as of this moment, I think they could make it. But so there's all these other guys. Uh, and I'll give you the field now. And then we're going to play a little game where we divide it up. Uh, into some categories. So the guys I don't think are going to make all-star this year that did last year, 
in no particular order. Trey Young, Andrew Wiggins, LaMelo Ball, Jared Allen, Rudy Gobert, Zach Levine, Darius Garland, Chris Middleton, DeJounte Murray, Carl Anthony Towns, Chris Paul, Fred Van Vliet, and Draymond Green. That's a lot of, that's a lot of names. Yeah. Okay? So I was, I was curious, like, so sometimes it's a blip. Sometimes if they don't make it the next year, sometimes it's like a downward trend. Sometimes it's, it's over. So of those guys, I'm curious which of them is never going to make another all-star game. So 22 was the last time they made it and they'll never do it again. And there's the other categories are they, they'll make one more. So say the over under is 0.5 or whatever. And then guys that are, and then the third category is guys that are going to make, you know, multiple all-star games again after missing it this year, which is kind of rare. If you look back at like historical precedent, a lot of times if you fall out of the all-star list, it's not easy to make it back, you know, let alone several times. And then the last thing is who of those guys is going to make the most all-star games going forward. Okay. So, so can we do it this way? Can you read the list one by one again? And I'll tell you whether which bucket they fall under. I'll say zero, one or multi. Is that perfect? And then I'll, I'll give you my divided up list after that. Um, All right. I need to, I'm going to need to timestamp this one because this is a good, uh, this is going to be a good, good clip. I think if we're, we're, we're quick enough, but I apologize, please. No, no. Okay. So we'll go one at a time and you tell me never again, one more all-star game, or they're going to make a bunch more at least, you know, at least two more. So Trey Young. He'll make multiple all-star games. I agree. Andrew Wiggins. Never again. Agree. LaMelo Ball. He's going to make multiple all-star games. Jared Allen. He'll make one. Rudy Gobert. Never again. It's oh, over. <laughs> Zach Levine. Oh, my God. It's a tough one. He'll make He'll make one more. Okay. Uh, Darius Garland. Multiple all-stars. Middleton. Oh. He'll make one more. <laughs> this is so hard. The one more guys, the one more guys are really hard because it's an act of faith and it's also like a condemnation because you're saying you got one more chance and then you're done. Uh, okay, that's that's a tough one. DeJounte Murray. Never again. Ooh. Carl Anthony Towns. He'll make multiple all-star games. Chris Paul. Never again. Fred Van Vliet. Never again. Draymond Green. He'll make one more. Ooh, okay. So I we only diverge on a couple. So here are my here are my never agains. Gobert, Van Vliet, Draymond Green, Andrew Wiggins, and Chris Paul. Um, my one mores are Levine, Chris Middleton, DeJounte Murray, and Jared Allen. And then my multiple got multiple future all-star games despite missing the 2023 all-star game again this is presumed like if trey young trey young might just end up on the all-star team or whatever but this is how it stands right now based on our opinion i think trey is going to make multiple i think Lamelo will make multiple garland and cat will make multiple towns was the one that gave me pause because i feel like his stock is so low based on how things have gone in minnesota but he's just going to have several years where he's like 24 and 11 and shooting 40% from three. And there's just not going to be a way to keep him out. Um, who of the guys that you listed as making multiple all-star games, do you think will make the most going forward? 
I think it's going to be Trey Young. It could. It's between him and Darius Garland for me. Maybe Lamelo gets in there a little bit, but I, I think it'll be Trey Young. Okay, I had Garland written down just because I felt safest with with him. But before we started recording, Trey was the other one where it's just it's kind of like the Towns argument. He's going to average twenty nine and twelve or something at least once going forward, and just I you know he's actually not that far off from that this year, but. Yeah, I think I think it's Trey or Garland. I'll just say Garland just to make it interesting. Um, but I think all those guys could make Trey, Lamelo, Garland, Cat could make like five, six plus more All Star games potentially. It's it's not out of the realm of possibility. But the Nevers are tough. Like so, we're just saying Gobert. You said Draymond would make one more. I'm not that optimistic. Like Gobert Wiggins was easy because he shouldn't have made it last year. Chris Paul, Van Vliet for me. It's tough. It's tough to like sort of pronounce the end of all-star status, but, but that's where and I think when you look in, I'm, this is thinking projecting too far ahead, but just like the guard pool young and even entrenched feels so deep where it's Chris Paul was easy, but someone like Van Fleet getting a little bit older undersized. It's just, how do you compete with like Garland and Mitchell and if Jalen Brown is ever eligible at guard still, and James Harden is still sort of floating around there. And if he does get traded to the West, like Steph and Dame and Luca and Shea, De'Aaron Fox, I, the, like these guys are not not going anywhere, and so that wasn't as hard as I thought. Fred Van Fleet was t- Van Fleet was tough, but like I, I found Gobert was the hardest one for me. But it's just like we're getting there, like over thirty, and I think that public perception, even if it's off, is going to matter when yeah. it comes to that. And also, just unless the Wolves are just fantastic at some point, which is not going to be this season, clearly, mm-hmm. and I probably bet against it being next season as well. It's just you can't expect him to be better than he was in Utah, and so th- th- those there were a few that gave me pause there. Chris Paul was at least semi. Even Wiggins gave me a little bit of pause, but it was just like he might be one of the best three and D wings in the league now. But like three and D wing, like Mikael Bridges isn't routinely in the All Star discussion. Ditto for OG Ananobi. You're right. Yeah, it's 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 tough. I think uh, I love how much pain Chris Middleton gave you. Cause that's, he's a perfect one more guy, I think. Cause he has to, he just has to have one more great season and then it's fine. But like, based on how this year's gone, I don't know. The arrow's down for sure. Health wise. And it's just like, he's missed now so much time this year. Does this become like a multi-year thing where it's okay. He's back next year, but he like needs to work through next year because he had all these injuries this year and he's just not hundred percent yet. Yeah. Levine's and where is he there. next year? He's got a player option. We're not like, how are we not just talking about Chris Middleton's potential free agency at this point? <laughs> because the bucks will pay him whatever it costs i imagine um all right yeah that was fun what's what's your next topic or i guess that's also last topic so yeah uh i want to talk about the mvp race and the like the conceptual the conceptuality behind it and it's this year i'm thinking about it more than most because i'm doing bleacher reports mvp ladder every other week and it is fucking difficult more than it has been in in years past and I, I have like, this is like an eightfold question, but it's like, is it designed the way that this award is set up? So we almost have to put other players down to make our case for another. And my other, like, it's kind of separate, but how much do we factor in supporting cast? Because I think a lot of people, Ben Moluka should win it this year because we gave it to Jokic last year since he did so much with a, with minimal supporting help and that's what luca is doing now and i don't know what to make of it is there a way to fix either of these two things that i'm that i'm highlighting like should the quality of your supporting cast matter is there a way 
to make the discourse in general more healthy and less ambiguous? Does there need to be a set of criteria? And so I want to start with, I guess, where you land on the supporting cast. Like, how much are you factoring that element into these discussions? And also, we haven't, I've written about it a bunch, but like, I haven't even asked you who's your MVP right now. So that might clue me in as to what you're thinking. But how do you treat that? Look, because people aren't wrong. If you voted for Nikola Jokic last year only because he dragged this unimpressive supporting cast or a supporting cast that was missing two of its best players to respectability, and now you're not going to do the same for Luka, it, I guess that is hypocritical, but there's also so much more that goes into it. Yeah, I... I mean, I, I don't know who I, I it's it to me. I was going to ask you, but I'll just say like, I think it's Luca and Jokic and not even necessarily in that order. And there's not really anybody else at the moment that I would. The Kevin Durant consider. and Steph injuries change yeah. the trajectory of the MVP race for sure. And, yeah. and I just think, I don't know what Embiid would have to do uh, to crack that top two. Cause he's playing. I mean, again, like he might finish second. Well, he's probably not finishing second unless there's an injury, but he's going to finish third potentially. And then he's just, he may go down as just the best player to never win an MVP. That's totally plausible, but it's those two. And so like parsing the the difference between those two guys, there's actually kind of a lot of similarities in terms of just how integral they are to their teams, whether you're looking at on off stuff, which basically everything favors Jokic, I think in terms of advanced metrics and on off impact and all that other stuff. So supporting cast is like, it cuts both ways because it needs to be good enough for your team to be relevant in like a top three, top four in your conference. And to just take another point of comparison, like Shed Gilgis Alexander is, you know, he's not on the level of Doncic and Jokic, but he's only ever going to be kind of a, well, let's talk about him, but he's not going to win an MVP if the Thunder are 10th, which they are now, or even if they're sixth or seventh, I don't think. And it's not because of him. It's, I mean, it's because a supporting cast isn't good enough to get the team there. The obvious other thing is, well, look at what this guy's carrying this team, right? And like that, that is sometimes compelling. So there is no answer. And that's the problem with MVP. And I think that's almost the feature and not a bug is that the definition of value does not exist in most valuable player. And so you can come at it from however you want to. I think that does, what that leads to is some people looking at a season and the players participating in it and viewing the MVP as a completely different thing from other people, because just we're going to, we're going to differ on what we think is valuable because, and, and even if you're trying to take pieces of everything, you know, you're, well, where is he in Raptor and estimated plus minus what's his box plus minus what's the on off. Well, how good are his teammates? Where is his team in the standings? Like just what is his role in the offense independent of production? Like, and also defense never tends to matter. That's, I think the one thing we all agree on is that that's just like a, well, we can talk about defense if we need to split hairs, but it's never going to be one of the top five or 10 things we care about. Yeah. So I think it's just, it's just going to be a debate because, and it's almost designed to be that way because nobody agrees on what valuable is. The last thing that the, I, I really am interested in, the first thing you brought up was, do we need to like, is if we're going to organize something in, a, in a, a ranking setup, you sort of have to shit on the people that are below the person above them to justify the argument. I'm having that with picking, I'm doing our all-star predictions for Bleacher Report. And it's like, there's a section for snubs. And like, so what do I do in that section? Do I say why this guy who's obviously a great player is not an all-star? Do I have to point out all the flaws? 
And like, sometimes you do, because otherwise you just say nice things about everyone and don't explain what the differences are. So it's just kind of going to come with it. I think the real, ideally you want to just pump up the person that's highest on the list and then try to do the same for everybody. But if you're making an argument of why one player is above another, I don't know how you do that without saying, well, here's, here's a problem for the guy that's ranked second and then third and on down and why they don't measure up. So, you know, I, I, I don't know how you get around that. If you ever figure that out, let me know, because you don't want to be having to dump on guys that you're like for you, you're saying, you're saying this guy is having one of the, you know, five or 10 best seasons in the league. It, it's kind of like a tough look to say, well, you know, he is true shooting percentage is only this high above league average. Therefore he's bad. Like that's, that's a tough place to be. I've defaulted to just like, I'm making my case for the player and it's independent of everyone else, but there does need to be some cross comparison there because you have to get into, well, why is it Jokic instead of Luca or vice versa? Or why is it? And I think some people kind of find not refuge, but they, they try to inoculate themselves against the critiques by saying, well, best player in the best team. And so I guess Mm -hmm. if you're defaulting to that, like there's your cover, you don't have to worry about sort of arguing anything else. I just don't like, I don't look at value in that way. And so I'm almost wondering like, would it benefit there for being like some sort of set criteria or if they came with like, do they need a separate like best player award versus most valuable or would that sort of like, is that dilute the conversation too much sort of how we have like, now we have the most clutch player in the league award. And it's like, like, that's kind of cute and cool, but is there too many awards at some point? And then would, would that, you know, sort of, diminish the value and appeal of actually having the MVP. If there's also a best player, which one actually means more. And how does that change discourse moving forward where it's like, Oh, so-and-so has this many best player awards, but so-and-so has this many MVPs. And is there ever a season where the player is one in the same? What is really the difference there? I don't have an answer. That's why I've been, I just honestly don't have an answer. I think it comes down to personal preference of what you like value or how you interpret value. And I think a lot of that can be done especially now is while you're looking at, well, look at how much they're uplifting a team that would be so bad without them. When I do think it's important to distinguish like, well, look how much they're uplifting a team that would be pretty good without them. And yet they're still making this massive difference, which is why I think, you know, a a case like Jokic's this season is stronger than -hmm. it was last year, because here he is with this better supporting cast and he's still uplifting the nuggets. If you just want to look at on off splits by more, points per 100 possessions when he's on the court then a Luca compared to when like the Dallas's shitty supporting cast if that's how you want to frame it is on the floor I'm not saying that makes Jokic the MVP he has been number one in my past two ladders so I want to make that clear full disclosure but I'm not going to claim to have all I this is something I thought about because I honestly just do not have the answer so I think I was trying to think about like what it would look like if we had clear criteria where almost this wouldn't be it, but it's just take an advanced catch all, you know, all in one stat. And just whoever leads in that stat is the MVP. And certainly if that were the case, it would be Jokic running away, depending like almost regardless of which catch all you used. But I think it's, it should be some of that because that's going to remove a lot of the bias, a lot of the sort of, uh, I don't know, subjectivity involved in it. What's interesting to me though, is, and, and, there's been a bunch of research and it just feels true anecdotally that it's just much harder to take a team from say like 
46 wins to 56 than it is to go from like 30 to 45 because just it's harder to go good to great than it is, you know, decent to good. And so in a way, the best player on the best team argument, it's it's too simplistic, but it almost does sort of accidentally get at the fact and the compelling fact that it just matters more if a player can elevate a team, you know, at a higher level, you know, maybe by the same increment in terms of like wins on the, on the, in the standings, but it, it does account the best player on the best team idea does account for what's a much more complicated and sort of, I don't know, maybe not even intuitive fact that it's just really hard to, to be the reason a team is great. And it's not quite as hard to be the reason a team is good. Even if, you know, from outside, it feels like, those should sort of, it shouldn't matter because we're just attributing the good to great bounce being from a better supporting cast or whatever, when probably it's this really great player that's making the supporting cast look better than it is, or at least that's something to be considered. So I think to wrap it, I think actually, even though we all disagree and even though it's thorny and it's like difficult and the criteria sort of don't exist, I don't feel like we get MVP like really wrong almost ever. It, it's it's It tends to be, well, it should have been like this one other guy, like the Derrick Rose season. I think, you know, there or any season that LeBron didn't win it in his prime. There are probably people think there's a Dwight Howard MVP in there somewhere, but it's not like, you know, neither of the last two years, I, I think, should anyone be freaking out that Jokic won it? It's a little weird because of the lack of playoff success, but I don't think, and even this year, if Jokic or Luka wins it, can, like, is it realistic that someone is where they are now? Is it realistic that someone's going to say this is a travesty? Like, we get it, we get it pretty close, even though the way we get there, like, I don't think anybody agrees on on how you do it. Which I think it's ultimately fine. I I just wish we acknowledged how difficult it was, or how open ended it was more, or even just how there might just be multiple correct or okay answers in any given scene like the whole drew hanlon like yeah he's gonna cape for his guy but where he's like being such a fucking dickhead uh about the way he goes about campaigning for joel and b like that stuff is just cringy and it still does annoy me let's mm-hmm. not saying that i'm that we're operating on this higher level but like i do think there's value in just saying hey this is hard it's open for interpretation maybe we're wrong i'm not trying to be an absolutist about it and like you said it does feel like we get it maybe not even if we get it right, but like we don't get it overly wrong right. every single season where even if there's two or three correct, like last year where it could have been Jokic and beat or Giannis probably if it wasn't Jokic, like, and Jokic was my pick, like I'm not going to quibble about it. There will be people though, that think it's a travesty if Jokic wins it again, because they'll say, Oh, he's with Wilt, Bill Russell and Larry Burrs, the only three time MVPs that just looks off. And it's like, well, why Jokic is on pace to just be like one of the greatest players of all time. Right. That's okay to say. So <laughs> I, it's there is no like i don't have a solution to this i just wish that we were that the the discourse was less absolutist when people are making a case for their for their choice where it's you know i have people there's someone i mentioned the other day saying like well luca is clearly the runaway favorite and i was like if you think there's a runaway favorite in this mb this was pre-durant injury i think you think luca is the runaway favorite in this mvp landscape maybe maybe step outside your bubble for a minute right no, I, I think, and this almost is unfair, but like if the Nuggets make the conference finals or the, if the Nuggets make the finals, I think, or and let alone win a title, I think then suddenly it's just going to, no one is going to ever again be like, 
that was weird when Jokic won three MVPs. And like the finals and the playoffs don't even factor in whatsoever. It's just, and I, I, I go down this road too. Like your playoff performance is sort of a validation of like what we, how good we thought you were in the regular season, because it's just, it's a little different. It's harder. It's, you know, the demands are greater, but it's like, if he wins a title, then like it's game on. He might win five MVPs because the biggest argument against him right now is like, that's a little crazy that this guy is going to win a bunch of MVPs in a row. That won't matter anymore. And it doesn't seem like that should be a consideration, but a hundred percent will be. Did you have anything else that you wanted to, to discuss? That's all I got. I think we should hit the mailbag unless you've got anything else. Did you want to, did you want to give us an outro for this part of it? So that I can put it up more easily. How's that for a peek behind the curtain? (laughs) Uh, That's going to do it for, uh, as far as you're concerned, listener, the end of this podcast, and Dan and I will definitely not continue recording another one after this. Um, as he said at the top, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, we've got a couple of YouTube options now. There's a little shorts channel that Dan has put together. Uh, the link to the link to that and link to everything. If it's not on the screen and you're watching this, uh, will be posted somewhere in the description. Uh, tell friends, join our Discord. Follow Dan, follow me on Twitter and everywhere else. And as we do every time, we end with a shout out to Frank Nolakina. And I would also like to apologize to Jared Allen, even though we both think he's going to make more all-star games.